Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to Massive Late Fee. We are here with another great interview. I know you guys have been loving these interviews. I am here with an absolute legend in the Hollywood industry. He has been in The Sting. He's been on Matlock, Simon and Simon, uh, Kenny Rogers, uh, The Gambler, that television movie. I, I I remember that one very well. He was in uh, the Herbie the Love Bug movie. Uh, just a ton of stuff with a lot of fascinating stories. It is uh, Lee Paul. Welcome, Lee. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I, you have a new book coming out. I want to mention, or a book out that's out right now that I want to mention right off the top called uh, Bitch, Pitch, and Get Rich, a, uh, a book about how to succeed, basically, uh, in, in any kind of creative endeavor. Can you tell us a little about uh, about your book? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote the book because uh, my father gave me three things. He gave me uh, big eyes, a double chin, and a gift of gab. And he was a, he was a raconteur and a salesman all his life. And because I learned how to talk, I was able to uh, use that uh, to benefit myself career-wise, and eventually, uh, as I got older, I did more talking and less doing. <laughs> the, book, the book allows you, with the concept that everybody bitches about everything, but few people do anything about it. And this book says that you bitch, you owe it to yourself and your loved ones to try to pitch a better idea, and then by pitching a better idea, even if the idea fails, you will enrich yourself because richness is not always in the pocketbook. It can be. And it says there are chapters that allow you to get up and stand on your feet, speak what you believe in, increase your uh, vocabulary, your memory, uh, your voice, develop your voice, and have the uh, courage to stand up and say, this is me and this is what I believe in. And it also deals with friendship and 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 things that just enrich your life. I think I think it's definitely a great idea uh, for a book with with the internet now and everyone being able to sort of give their opinion or throw their ideas out there. I think there are definitely a lot of people that either complain or or throw out uh, you know kind of half cocked ideas, but not nearly enough people. Who follow up uh, on those things? So I, I think a lot of people will definitely find it helpful. Well, the problem with today's technology, in my opinion, is that we have lost the capacity to communicate one on one. People text each other across a table rather than talk to each other. And this book is a maybe antiquated from that point of view, but I believe that everything boils down to one on one. Uh, you have to be able to look somebody in the eye and say, hello, this is what I believe in, this is who I am, and hear what they say as well. And so that's why learning to have the confidence to stand up and be heard and to listen, which is just as important, is what this book's all about. You started your career, uh, the, f- the first thing that I have is is 66 uh, on uh, Hey Landlord. 
uh, the TV series. You did a lot of television uh, earlier in your career and, and, you know, later in your career too. Uh, back in, in the, you know, mid sixties, the seventies, uh, during that era of television, was there, uh, we, we always kind of hear about it, but I'm curious, was there a really st- stark division between quote unquote TV actors and movie actors? That's an interesting question, and the truth is that there was. Uh, early on, movie stars and movie performers wouldn't do television. They thought television had killed the business for them, and that they thought it was beneath them. Uh, so when you were a episodic television actor, you were not in the same A list as they were. And of course, even today, you're never in the same list. But what has happened, ironically, as there's been less and less work and more and more actors, television is now a plethora of, of movie stars doing television. In fact, a lot of them moved from their career on film to television and had their own series and went on and on with that great stuff. But today, it's more or less an open field. Uh, I won't go into, unless you want to hear about it, how stars are regulated and how their roles are regulated in the industry compared to how they say in England. But if you want to hear about that, I'll be happy to talk about it. Sure. I mean, that's that definitely sounds uh, interesting. Where What uh, exactly, how, how are they regulated uh, in the United States? Well, let's put it this way. When I was doing The Gambler, one and two with Kenny Rogers, Mm -hmm. I happened to be on the set when a photographer from the local newspaper, we were in Panorama City, Florida, and that's another story about the Twilight Clock. We'll get into that if you want. But he took a picture of me sitting in makeup, in costume, on this old antique car. And it was one of the shots printed in the paper amongst all the stars of the show. Uh, And I got a lot of flack. How did you get into this? You're just a supporting player, or just a co-star. And at the same time, when we went anywhere, there were the, the limousines, and the retinue, and the leading people were up front, and the supporting people were in the back. And that was the way it was. And the point is that you had to fight as a performer to try to get into the inner circle. And it was tough. If you pushed too hard, you got blackballed or you got dismissed. If you didn't push at all, you just lingered in, in, in the bottom uh, morass of all the other actors. And so it was a struggle. Advertising was one of the ways to do that, to help yourself break yourself out. And today now, it's all on the Internet. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, sort of the strata that uh, existed in Hollywood at the time. I can definitely see that, but I think I, I don't know. I feel like there's more of an appreciation today for great character actors that uh, that you know move from from show to show or or, or film to film, uh, and you know obviously. Without great character actors, there are no great movies. Um, so I think that's that's at least an attitude that I think has been relaxed. I don't know 
at least outside the industry. I don't know exactly if it's still like that in the industry or or not, but I, it seems like there's more appreciation for uh, you know supporting players uh, as it were. Well, we would we would hope so. And the older the the people who like the older genre, where there's good stories and story writing, which we more or less lost by blowing up everything in the world and in the universe. Uh, those people do remember the character actors. Today it's all CIG and it's all Foley and it's all this and that. And a lot of the a lot of the great writing has gone in England. You know, a, a lord or a sir, a, a knighted actor can do a walk-on role with no billing, and it's perfectly acceptable. And in fact, it enriches the the cast of all these shows with just the greatest actors doing what we would consider the parts. In America, if you step down one step from your position, wherever it is, you can't get back. In other words, it takes 30 years to get to the top, and it takes 30 seconds to wind up at the bottom. And, 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 and that robs the public of a lot of great small, intimate performances that these stars could offer. But again, now we get into that thing about what are stars. And I can talk about that in reference to Sting, if you'd like, because that's another aspect of our industry that I think doesn't do the job of allowing the public to get the best performances all the time. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I definitely want to talk about the Sting. Um, You've sparked my my interest a little uh about the the films that we have today and, and sort of the the lack of writing the the uh netflix and there are a couple other streaming services i think do it well i don't know if they do a decent job but at least they they provide a venue for some uh smaller films unfortunately as a lot of people have pointed out uh what happens with some of these smaller movies is that or medium-sized movies, really, medium-budgeted films. They just sort of get dumped on Netflix with no trailers, no fanfare or anything like that. It's very hard for them to find an audience. It seems that uh, anything that does well in the theaters now is a some large tentpole movie, whether it's a, a superhero film or some giant uh, horror project or um, you know a big action movie like that. And we really do see a lack of solid screenplay writing in in the business now. What? Why exactly? What exactly do you think shifted about the industry to cause this to occur? And do you think that there is a possibility of it shifting back a, at some point? Well, it's all about money today. If you don't have a budget of at least ten million dollars and up. Nobody wants to look at it because that's where the money is made. The the art films, the small, the smaller productions, the one and a half million to five million, or even the low, low budget Screen Actors Guild contracts of under five hundred thousand. They try to make films that make them on credit cards. Uh, those are almost impossible, as you said, to get the exposure you need unless it's some unique trick. I think uh, uh, there were a couple of horror films that started out just low, low budget, but they caught on and became uh, a phenom and people started to watch. The problem is that it's harder to write a good story than it is to blow up 
the world, even though they do a marvelous job. I mean, I look at the large action films, believe me. And I'm a fan of 3D, and we could go on two years about 3D. Uh, and still, they're still making some of these massive uh, epics in 3D. But I really think that it's the, it's the money, the money. They have to get a star. If you don't have a star, you don't have a project. You have to pay a tremendous amount of money, which leaves very good money in the budget normally for all the supporting players, the good character people you like. It's like the lottery. The first prize is $12 billion. The second prize is three bucks. And there's nothing left for the smaller player. Well, there's nothing left for the smaller actor either, money-wise. And we fight and struggle just to stay alive because the budget is completely overwhelmed by protection uh, and by uh, the stars demanding these huge salaries. You know, again, I don't want to get into this thing so much, but uh, it's a great film. And if I can continue, one of the things about this thing was that the major stars didn't get a lot of money. They got a good salary, but they were... They knew this thing may or may not take off, and so they asked for a large percentage of the gross. And that's where they made their money and made millions. But the point is that today, people don't trust anything. If it doesn't click in 24 hours, it's dead. And, and, and if something doesn't happen in 24 milliseconds, it's dead. So they don't trust the, the long legs of some of these films. And so what they do is they want a big chunk in front, and if it doesn't make it, they've got theirs. Yeah, yeah, gone are the days of, uh, like, E.T. or, um, you know, even Dra even as, as, as recently as, like, the mid-'90s, like Jurassic Park, which would be in theaters for... Years, I think ET was in theaters for about two years. Uh, that obviously because of the internet and home video, Netflix, things like that. Uh, that that really doesn't happen anymore. These movies seem to make all their money in the first, you know, three or four weeks, and then they're gone, and something else is uh, is taking their place. So that yeah, the a lot, technology and money, I think, have definitely uh, shifted the industry for sure. Um, before, uh, real quick, early on in your career, as, as I said, you were in a lot of uh, very popular television shows too. Uh, Hawaii Five-0, uh, you had a couple guest spots on Mission Impossible, Macmillan and Wife, uh, Kung Fu. Uh, what, what was the, what's the audition process like or what was the audition process like in the, uh, the early 70s as far as getting on these different shows and, um, you know, did people sort of see you around, know that you, that you were available for these things or, or did you, uh, did you, uh, seek out a lot of these, uh, these projects sort of, how did that materialize? Well, you bring a, a very, very cogent point. Today, everybody can be a casting director. If they have a PC, they can get breakdowns and find out what films are up and what the parts are, and they can submit themselves and other people without an agent. In the early days, your agent was everything. If your agent had a good reputation and they needed a certain part, they would go to these major agencies and 
Yeah, especially like you said when um when Peter Cushing is taking uh, taking parts from you and he died in uh what 1991. Yeah, that's one of his characters I was trying to think of. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh but uh so you know through through all that television work obviously you get uh, a role in The Sting, a award-winning film 1973, Paul Newman and uh Robert Redford, two obviously gigantic stars at the time. Uh, what, how exactly did you get your, your role in the sting and what was it like to be on that kind of a, a big set? Well, let me share, uh, let me start off by humbly saying that I got hired by mistake. That's what, that's what I was told by George Roy Hill, the director in the middle of production one day, <laughs> he later he later refuted that statement. But what happens is, when you're a supporting player, and uh, even though I'm a feature player, they actually had two or three weeks of rehearsals before they started filming this, uh, this movie with all the major stars. The supporting players weren't in there. 
In fact, uh, I complained when we did the 30th anniversary at the Newport Film Festival a couple years ago that I wish they'd given me more than one line. My line was, <laughs> the truth is that I was on the film for 14 weeks, which today is an absolute career. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you get paid residually by how long you're on the film, not necessarily how many lines you have. So the point is that I got hired because he picked me out of a, a casting, uh, maybe the Academy players in those days or whatever, and saw a guy and said, get that guy. Now, I get on the set, and one of the first shots is us, Charlie Dirk up, the other bad guy, the other uh, heavy, and me walking through to the train. And what he did was he put me leading, because I'm the big guy. I'm 6'6", six, six, and I'm the big bad guy, even though I have a baby face. In fact, Rolling Stone said in the paper when they when they wrote an article about us being in Chicago, Lee Babyface Paul. So that was that was my title at the moment. Anyway, <laughs> I'm walking down, and we're walking back and forth. The, the train is moving. And when they thought, saw the rushes, two things happened. One, Pat Duty, who was the main male costume, brought me over the side and said, well, thank God you're in the movie. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he hired the wrong guy. But once they established me, I was in the film. The next thing was that George Ray Hill in the, in the day said, why in the hell did I put him first? I can't put anybody behind him. I should have put little Charlie first, Robert Dawn second, and the big dink third. Because <laughs> <laughs> you could see me above everybody's head. But that's the way it was sequenced, and that's how I got the film. Now, your publicity guy, uh, Steve Twitter, is my new publicity man. The man I had at the time was named Al Ebner, and he was a legend. Uh, in fact, I know I'm talking too much, and I apologize. No, Al Ebner actually helped my wife, who was a dancer, a lead dancer in Vegas for 20 years, get a, a role, a small supporting role in Third Girl from the Left with Ken Novak. But Al Ebner actually put a little article out in the in the Variety, which is the uh, in-house, you know, publication for people in the industry, with a blurb that says, Lee Paul co-stars with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Oh, my God. It was nowhere, nowhere near a co-star. And I hid for two days in the set because I was sure they were going to just either ridicule me or just chop me up in little pieces. It turns out they didn't give a damn. But the truth is that it was all publicity. And that, and, and it, it's amalgam. You, you try to do your best. You, you get prepared for the role. You study. You train. And then uh, the next minute you're outside. The next minute you're inside. The next minute you're outside. And you don't know whether you've got it or not. Right. Uh, yeah, that definitely... The I think... I think that's one thing that ne hasn't necessarily changed uh, today, although I think the methods of it obviously have changed. But uh, yeah, publicity and, and hype and stuff like that uh, definitely is still part of the industry. I think it's easier. A lot of times people have to do it themselves, uh, you know, whether it's on the Internet or, or, or whatever. Uh, I think it's a, a lot of times it's a little easier 
to have a third party do it because I'm sure you wouldn't have thought of to get a story in variety of you co-starring in uh in the sting but the the you know the people that you pay to to kind of you know hype your career that's the sort of stuff that they don't feel any embarrassment uh, doing no i might have tried but they wouldn't have listened to me you have to have you know you have to have your reputation you have to have something leading you on public relations and publicity it's show and business the show is the publicity the acting stuff, and the business is the money yeah, for sure. Um, so after The Sting, uh, you do another uh, string of TV series. One thing that, that strikes me about your resume is that you have a, you've appeared multiple times on the same uh, shows, uh, different characters. The, uh, you know, this has obviously is the era of episodic television where... You know, shows don't or uh, episodes don't necessarily connect to each other. I mean, they're obviously they're all part of the same series, but there's no necessarily serialized overarching plot line. So the people are free to to play different. You know, the uh, the um, supporting players are free to play uh, different roles as they're brought back. But it says to me that uh, people must have liked working with you and enjoyed the work that you were doing because like I said, it seems to me, I mean, you were on, uh, Ironside three different times, one time, uh, you know, in a, a two, a two part, uh, show. Um, and you know, you were on uh, Canon a few times. Um, you know, there were lots of shows that you did more than one appearance on. So do you feel like, uh, that you, you were the type of person that people enjoyed, uh, your work and your work ethic on set. And that's why, they kept bringing you back? Yes and no. Yes, I, uh, I, I try to present myself professionally, be prepared to the best work. My wife of 47 years, I might say, says I ask too many questions. And I, and I used to ask a lot of questions because I, curiosity, again, is one of the things that enriches your, your entire being. And I also wanted to be as clear minded about my role and what I did. Uh, I mean, I've said, can I get the box, boss, 400,000 times, and you have to find different ways to say it as a bad guy. But the truth is that a lot of these multiples were by different directors, and each director brings his own team together and casts the role himself. So if you're active and you've got a decent agent and you do everything you can publicity-wise and everything, you get at least to go in and read for the roles. And if you're, if you're lucky enough and enough uh, and the part is right enough, you get cast. Now, that's the bane and the boon. I was a big guy. I played mentally retarded uh, bad guys for years because my real brother... No, this uh, J. Crow um, was an idiot savant. He had a problem early on in his life and, and, and went into a coma. But I watched him so much that I was able to empathize, but also bring his his troubled spirit to the screen. And in fact, 
I was cast over and over again as kind of an oath for a guy that was dumb or a guy that was not all there. In fact, one role, and you mentioned Ironside, one role, it was so close. Listen, this is really something. You've got to let me talk about this. In those days, there was caring, even with the, with the, with the studios and with the networks. My real brother had this brain damage. I played one of my best roles with a very, very young 11-year-old Jody Foster called Bubble Bubble Toy Murder on Ironside. In fact, Rod Serling of, of um, Twilight Zone fame actually had a role in it. Why he, he would take a role from that, I don't know. But, but NBC actually wrote my mother in New York, in Brooklyn, and said, your, your son is going to be on our show. He's playing a, uh, a mentally retarded character. He's extremely effective in it. But we wanted to prepare you for it because we didn't want you to be upset. Who would do that today? Right. Nobody. Nobody. Now, not only did I, was I good in the role, I was very good in the role. I got fan mail from across the country saying we're so happy that people with mental deficiencies are given a chance to show it. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely uh, that's definitely high praise. Um, and, you know, you bring up an interesting point, too, that I think uh, not a lot of people think about outside of the industry, and I wonder how many young actors really think about it today. Uh, one of the big things as far as as being an actor and preparing for roles, you have to be a good observer as well. You have to be a good observer of people and, and how they behave. And I, I don't... Do you think that, that that's an art form lost on some of the younger uh, up-and-coming actors now? I hate, I, I hate to be negative about anybody, but superficiality has become a thing. Non-involvement has become a thing. The point is, they're so busy leaping, tunneling, running, falling down, that there's very little time for character development. And there's very time for, uh, little time for observing, as you say. I mean, some of the great, great actors, uh, Charles Lawton said, it's my job to, to show on screen the pathos, the empathy, the caring that people feel in their heart but are ashamed or, or embarrassed to relate to when they talk to other people. But they can see it in a, in a role that I can help bring to the screen and feel it and share it with the people that care. And what has happened is there's very, very few roles that have empathy, that have caring. They don't write on that way. It's not that the actors can't do that. They're just not asked to do it. You know, I mean, can you imagine The Rock uh, having to, be, you know, go one quarter of an inch be below his muscular skin? They don't ask him to do that. Right. And people don't care about it. They just want to see him blowing up the, the latest skyscraper. And that's a tragedy. That's why I'm a fan of Turner Classic Movies. There's a plug for Turner Classic Movies. I'm still watching movies in the 40s and 50s. In fact, before this interview, I was watching uh, a silent film with Greta Garbo with sound effects behind it. 
The dialogue was not uh, live, but the sound effects were. And I think it was called Black Orchid or something like that. Fascinating because I love the, the old cars and everything. Well, 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 we used to have silent movies. Then we had movies with sound. Then we had sound in movies. Now we have sound with movies. It's, uh, you know, 5.1, 7.1 channel surround sound is what we revel in. Mm-hmm. And the stories have, uh, have, have diminished, in my opinion. Did you see, you know, working from the the 60s to the 70s to the late 80s, um, did you see a lot of change in the industry during that period of time? Or do you think that, uh, you know, with the the rise of the Internet and and things like that, that the changes have have come more recently and more quickly? I think they've come more recently and more quickly. I did not see uh, the changes that much. I, I was still in the in my idea of the glory days in, uh, up to '91, and, and I left the business for many reasons. In fact, my new agent, my new agent said, "Well, tell me about yourself." They actually found me and brought me in, and I said, "Well, for the first thirty years, I was acting. The next thirty years, the living and life." Because I too had to grow, I had to uh, to absorb the experience of being a human being. Because that, that's again, we're getting to technology now. We're losing that touch with humanity. We're losing the touch with humanity. We're not only losing the touch with humanity; we're losing the touch with the earth and the sky and the water. But let's not go into that because that's another five years of, of interview. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, yeah. We we could definitely. I think you and I, I think you and I think quite similarly, and we definitely could go a long time about things like that. Um, in uh, in the eighties, uh, you know, in late late seventies too, you did as you mentioned uh, the Kenny Rogers uh, films, the two the gambler films. Um, what uh, what was it like to uh, to work? With uh, Kenny Rogers, obviously not uh, necessarily a trained actor, a, a singer, um, but I I remember uh, from being a kid, these uh, films were the television movies were immensely popular. Um, you know, I remember watching them, and uh, you know how how exactly did that project come together, and, and what was it like working uh, working on that film? Well, let me let me share this. Kenny Rogers was professional and, and and a great singer. Uh, I loved Country Western too. And he did something that was absolutely mar- marvelous. The first day on the set of the first gambler that we did, he brought the cast together and said, "Look, I'm not an actor. I'm a singer. Anything you guys can do to help me get through this." I'm going to greatly appreciate. He was humble enough to say, help me. And everybody did. Now, one thing you don't know, or people may not know, is Kenny has one eye, and I can't remember whether it was the left or right. It was a weak eye. It used to kind of flutter a little bit. It, it, or, or drift just a little bit. He wasn't cross-eyed, but in a close-up, you could see it moving. And they shot almost entirely every one of his close-ups from the other side. So it wouldn't show. 
Now, that was a, a practical thing uh, to make the film better, but it was also an homage to him as a professional who said, make me look as good as I can. Now, that's pretty fine. Today, you don't even get a chance to talk to, uh, to the stars. They have their dressing rooms, they have their, their limos, and unless you're in the inner circle, you're just not in it. Period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know they you do the uh, the gambler. Obviously, they bring you back uh, for the sequel. Um, in the in the in the sequel, you uh, now did you play a different character in the sequel? Well, actually, I played the same character but with a totally different bent. Okay. In the first gambler, I was just a bad big bad guy. In the second, I was a big, bad, wish guy. I was fumbling around, I was nervous. Uh, I was the keeper of the money. And in the last, in the last sequence, I guess, I started, when near, near the climax, I was running and I started to stumble. And uh, the camera stood on me as I tried to not fall down because it wasn't staged that way. And I kept getting closer and closer and closer to the ground and running and running and finally I hit the ground and the money went all over the place and that was the start of that sequence. But I was allowed to be a slightly different character. And as a bad guy, that's what we look for. We look for the variance and that's the fun of being a bad guy. Mm. A heavy, a heavy can be a different kind of heavy. It doesn't have to be just a heavy heavy all the time. Now, they try to they try to box you. You know, I told you before I played this retarded person in Battle of and Murder, and for the next eight years, the same producer hired me over and over again for the same role. And I finally said, in different shows, of course, I said, why do you do that? He said, because I can count on you. It's no problem. Done deal. And I said, well, I'd like to try something else. Uh, I can do something else. Bring me in another part. He said, oh, sure. Never Never heard from him again. (laughs) Because everybody wants wants a quick deed. And sometimes the creative process demands demands involvement, demands blood and guts in order to get something meaningful and soulful about the role. And of course, the time frame of television doesn't often allow you to do that yeah absolutely um as we talked about uh earlier you know with uh the lack of uh original well not necessarily like well there's a lot of remakes and a lot of uh a lot of reboots obviously in, in hollywood um but with the lack of sort of intimate and uh, well-written tightly woven scripts uh, on the big screen, it seems like that's helped a revitalized TV a, a little, uh, especially um, uh, uh, not series television, like uh, uh, serialized television with, you know, uh, long overarching stories, things like that, um, you know, breaking, whether it's Breaking Bad or, or The Wire, Sopranos sort of uh, started at uh, six feet under. Um, do you think that uh, television is even better than it was uh, before. And do you think that? Um, what do you what do you attribute the 
you know, where te- the directions that television has taken? Well, I, I believe the networks, which used to rule everything, formalized everything. And so it was, it was the same music, the same, the same cutting, the same style. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the independence, the, uh, the cable has expanded greatly the uh, creativity of the writers, and some of these new shows are terrific. Absolutely terrific. I only wish that I was, they written some parts now for older guys. Because, <laughs> again, it, it, the demographics are, are, are projected to the, you know, the 20s to, to 40s. That's, that's where the where buyers are, that's where the attentiveness is, that's where the interest is. But yes, I agree with you. I believe that television is better because it is and it is formalized. At the same time, under uh, the, the strict uh, regions of the networks, they did some wonderful things, all in the family. Uh, and I, I studied uh, with, uh, with Rob Reiner in the early days uh, with the same acting coach who's now gone, Jeff Corey. Uh, yeah, but they, the creativity will find a way out. Now, whether it's going to be big money and big box office, we never know. But as an actor or as someone who wants to really feel alive and be involved with life, um, you've got to empathize, you've got to communicate, you've got to be able to look someone in the eye and say, how are you? Tell me something I haven't heard before. And uh, and maybe more and more writing will come to that. I, I've got a script in front of me that I wrote because I was hoping that maybe somebody in the audience was dying to do a five, a two to five million dollar budget <laughs> right here in front of me called Bastard Pink. But that's another story for another time. Well, Vince Gilligan, I know you listened to the show. Mr. Gilligan, uh, you know, write a part for, um, for Lee Paul in, uh, in your next uh, upcoming thing. That's my, that's my plea to you. Um, (laughs) well, that is, uh, that is all the time we have here on massive late fee. It has been a singular pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Paul, uh, go out and check out the book, bitch pitch and get rich. Uh, you can find that on Amazon. Definitely check that out. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, tune into some of these, uh, older TV shows for, uh, you know, both uh, Mr. Paul's great work on them and for, uh, you know, interesting characterization, interesting acting, and uh, and definitely some innovative uh, writing. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it has been a pleasure. We will hope to talk to you soon. Thanks again, Mark Phillips. It's been fun. Thanks.